from Pacifica, this is Democracy Now! Democracy Now! is a daily, independent, award-winning news program heard on the station Monday through Friday. Headlines can be heard at 8 a.m. on Morning Main and in its entirety at 5 p.m. Democracy Now!'s War and Peace Report provides our audience with access to people and perspectives rarely heard in the U.S. corporate-sponsored media, including independent and international journalists and ordinary people from around the world who are directly affected by U.S. foreign policy. For alternative news analysis, tune into Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman weekdays at 8 a.m. for the headlines and 5 p.m. for the complete hour, only on Community Radio WERU-FM. Support for Common Ground comes from Fields Pond Audubon Center, a green design nature center in Holden with summertime day and week-long nature explorations for children as well as year-round nature store, lake access, and educational programs about habitat conservation for people of all ages. More information at mainaudubon.org or 989-2591. Support for Common Ground also comes from Southwest Cycle, celebrating nearly 30 years of providing bicycle sales, service, and rentals to the Downies community. Located at 370 Main Street in Southwest Harbor, 244-5856 or online at southwestcycle.com. It is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online around the world at WERU.org. Common Ground Radio with your hosts, the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association is up next. Good morning, everybody, and welcome once again to Common Ground Radio. My name is Andrew Marshall. I'm the Mafka Education Director, and uh, I'm joined in the studio with my colleagues who will introduce themselves shortly. Uh, we have a great show for you today. Uh, we're going to spend most of the hour talking to Dr. Eric Seidman, who is a Mafka's crop specialist and uh, a great wealth of information and knowledge about everything uh, related to organic agriculture in Maine. Um, but before we do that, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about what we're all seeing out there in the markets and farms and uh, update you guys on a little bit of what's coming up and what to expect in, on the calendar. I'm going to hand it off to my colleagues now. Hi there, this is Cheryl Wixon, and I am or- the organic marketing consultant from MAFCA, and this has been a very exciting summer in the markets. There is so much produce and so much food. The blueberries are in full swing. As a matter of fact, on the way in this morning, I saw them harvesting in some of the fields. And I'm off to Highland Blueberry Farm after this to pick up 110 pounds of blueberries for my freezer. <laughs> Good morning. I'm Melissa White Pillsbury. I'm the Organic Marketing Coordinator for MOFCA. Um, I concur with Cheryl. The season this year is great. You're seeing uh, this is definitely pickling season right now. We're seeing tons of cucumbers and uh, green beans at the market. Um, and actually, I, I went to the Unity Farmers Market last weekend, and I uh, was talking to Peter Curra of Curra Family Farms, and he had some acorn squash there at the market. So it's an early <laughs> season for winter squash when you're seeing it the 1st of August. Um, garlic is also early this year. People are curing garlic and, and starting to bring that to market as well. Um, 
and we're seeing the the first early apples and um, pears. I've been seeing those at the market as well. Yes, and um, Leslie from Five Star Nursery tells me that she should have peaches in just a few days, and that's one of my favorite crops. So. Yum. And good morning. I'm Russell Libby. I'm Mafka's executive director, and uh, this has been an on-the-road month for me, too. So I've stopped by the Eden Farmer's Market in um, Bar Harbor a week ago Sunday. There were a dozen vendors. There were uh, just wall-to-wall people. You know, I think one of the things that's exciting this year is just the, the great um, abundance after last year's kind of rain-out summer. So everybody's out there. Um, grabbing tomatoes, grabbing things that they couldn't get last year because of the of the tough growing season. Um, in the the vein of upcoming events um, for Mofka and other organizations in the area, uh, just a note about uh, Mofka: the Common Ground Country Fair is coming up next month, which I'm sure most of you have on your calendars. But um, we're actually taking submissions for the poster contest right now and the deadline is actually today at 4 p.m. so if you haven't gotten anything down on paper yet get to it you have a few hours left um, and we're actually registering volunteers already for the fair and where we need volunteers for the fair from the first of September all the way through the second of October so um, you can go to our website and get more information about volunteering at the fair um, we can use always use your help Another event that's coming up tomorrow is um, actually another organization. It's the Sheep Scott Wellspring Land Alliance, and they're having a sustainable backyard tour of farms, homes, and woods in Waldo County. But I'll be at Village Farm in Freedom for that tomorrow at 2 p.m., giving a talk about using local foods year-round in Maine. And next Tuesday, we have uh, the next of our series of weekly farm training projects. It's going to be about farming with horses at New Beat Farm in Jefferson. Again, that's Tuesday, August 10th, and that starts at 5 p.m., and those are, that's open to the public. Well, in addition to what you're seeing in the marketplace these days, you be sure to pick up uh, your recent copy of the Maine Seasonal Food Guide. This is July and August. This tells you what to expect and what's in season. Has two very exciting recipes and has a panel that talks about freezing summer vegetables. This is going to be one of those great summers when there's so much produce you want to take advantage of it and put it away for later on in the winter. The two recipes that we're featuring are summer market ratatouille and fennel chev soup. I've been making this summer market ratatouille almost every week <laughs> just because we've had so much produce, so much zucchini. And I find that if I prepare it and then put it in the refrigerator and chop it up, I can serve it the next night on some uh, bread as an appetizer as a spread. So it's a really handy thing to have around. Mm. Great. Um, well, I'm pretty excited to uh, have Eric Seidman on the, f- on the phone with us today. Eric started work with Mafka in, I think, 1986. Um, he'll he'll uh, give us the year in just a second here. But when Eric Seidman started as Mafka's organic crop specialist, he was the first person in the country to fill that role for an organic farming association. So, you know, several decades later, now it's a pretty common for the farming associations to have somebody out there working with them, helping out on um, on the farm. So, Eric, good morning from uh, from far away. Good morning, Russell, and good morning, everyone else. 
and maybe you could just give us a kind of a quick overview of what you're seeing out there in terms of um, things that are working well this year and where people are having um, having problems on their farms and then in just a couple minutes we'll open it up for calls and we'll also take emails and we'll give you both of those after um, after we talk with Eric for just a minute. Well, this is a very different year than last year. Um, most of the emails I get and telephone calls start with everything's looking great in my garden except uh, which wasn't the case last year where almost nothing looked great. Um, I think uh, for the most part what I deal with still are pests um, insects and diseases and weeds, and I'm once in a while getting fertility questions. And this year we're seeing a different array. Things started very early. It was very warm during February and March. It's hard to remember back that far, but actually that's when the warm spell began, and things were pushed way ahead of normal. And so the first thing we saw was a major kill by a frost the day after Mother's Day and people who didn't protect their strawberries uh, lost them and lots of people lost apples and peaches and other crops and crops that you never even thought were frost sensitive um, asparagus is a big one one of my early fights on the phone when i started working for mafka and you're right it was 1986 with somebody who called and was arguing with me that asparagus was not frost sensitive and in fact this year they probably learned that it was and so now we're towards the middle of the summer, we're still seeing uh, two big problems and we're seeing uh, the repercussions from them and people are confusing them with late blight. Probably my most common email is telling people that the picture they sent to me is not late blight. What uh, is around this year is damage from the tarnished plant bug and damage from the leaf hopper. And both of those superficially look like a disease when you see them this late in the season. And what kind of crops are you see? You know, are people seeing that on? So obviously, tomatoes, where we had the big blight problem last yeah, year. Actually, much more common on potatoes. So you see the uh, the edges of the leaves of potatoes turning yellow and then brown and then crisp, and then a week or two later, the plant is just dead as if it were killed by late blight. That's uh, leafhopper damage and tarnished plant bug. Also on potatoes, the newer tips of the plants are dying from that. We're also seeing damage from tarnished plant bug on basil, lettuce, uh, especially um, on potatoes, killing the tips of the plants. And, and are there ways that um, organic farmers and gardeners are, are able to deal with those problems? Or well, the tarnished plant production? bug is much harder. The tar I'll start with the one that's hard to control first. Tarnished plant bug feeds on over 300 species of plants, and so you can go out and kill it with uh, an organic material like pyrethrum. Uh, the problem is, is that since it's feeding on 300 species of plant, it's all over out in the fields and the lawns and the weedy edges of the woods. And so you could kill it, but two or three days later, they'll be replaced by new individuals coming in. Um, the tarnished plant bug is also taking out buds. M many people are calling me who have beautiful pepper plants and eggplants, but no peppers or eggplants. That's due to two reasons. One, it's been exceptionally warm, and it's, uh, a lot of people disagree, but in the case that peppers and eggplants are actually both moderate weather plants, they don't take the heat very well at all, and pollination doesn't take place, and you'll get uh, blossom drop. The blossoms can also drop from the tarnished plant bug feeding. So you could spray for them, but I don't think you're going to get anywhere. Um, the populations are beginning to subside right now. 
Leafhoppers are different. Leafhoppers don't overwinter here. They come in from, actually, they don't overwinter anywhere further north in the Gulf of Mexico. And they work their way up as warm weather spreads north. And the leafhopper comes in and attacks strawberries, alfalfa, um, potatoes, and beans. And those are its favorite crops. And again, uh, pyrethrum is going to be the material you use. Um, in this case, you're going to have to scout and spray early because the damage they do is by sucking out the juices from the plants, injecting a toxin into the cells, and then those cells die. And so what you would see in strawberries, cat-faced strawberries, strawberries that have this really funny misshapen look to them, that's tarnished plant bug feeding. Um, a dimple on the side of an apple, that's tarnished plant bug feeding, where that those cells around that dimple didn't grow while the rest of the apple did. Peppers and eggplants, they feed on the buds, and the buds, the flowers just fall right off before they even open. Potatoes, beans, they feed on the new growth of the plant and uh, weaken and sometimes kill the growing tips of the plant. And so you want to sp spray um, for the leaf popper early when you see can't wait for the damage to occur because it's too late by then and the plant will go down. Great. Well, we're, um, we're about ready to take calls, but we're, because we only have one open line today, we're going to um, first take calls on 469-0500, and we may um, ask you to hang up so the next person can get in queue fairly quickly. Um, and the other thing that we'll do this morning is take emails. Um, through mafka at mafka.org, M-O-F-G-A at M-O-F-G-A dot O-R-G. Um, so if you can't get through on the phone, feel free to send an email and we'll, we'll kind of grab alternating questions that way. So phone lines open, 469-0500. Um, Eric, are there, um, you know, how do people find out about what's going on out there? If they have questions, if they're seeing something in their gardens or on their farms, um, what's the best way for them to kind of sort out what those issues are? Well, I think the way is to uh, get my pest report. I offer a pest report that goes out uh, usually about every two weeks during the heart of the growing season. And in that pest report, I discuss the issues that I'm seeing on farm visits and that I'm hearing about from farm inspectors that we send out for our certification program. Um, I also hear about problems that are happening south of us, and we being lucky, being the furthest east and north, we're often the last on the line to get things that don't overwinter here, like tarnished plant bug, for example. I'll know they're coming a couple of weeks before they actually get here because they're down in Massachusetts. Um, and so I send out the pest report, and people can go onto the Mafka website, and under publications you can get to pest reports, and there's a place there to actually contact me by email and get on my email list, and you'd get it a couple of days earlier than it ends up on the web. Great. We have our first caller. If you'd just say your name and your town, that would be great. Hi, this is Lorraine from Lincolnville. Eric, um, we've corresponded a bit on email about powdery mildew. My question is, to use a spray, whether I decide to go with garlic or baking soda or sulfur, when is the best time of day to spray? And Do I need to worry about the zillions of bees that are around? Will the spray affect the bees? Um, I'll get off the line. Okay, that's great. Uh, none of those sprays are going to affect the bees, but I 
I still would not spray during the heat of the day. Uh, some plants are phytotoxic, uh, excuse me, sensitive to phytotoxicity from sulfur, and the heat exasperates that. So I would spray in the evening uh, with any of those sprays. One caution, there may be some farmers listening. If you're a farmer, you have to use an EPA-registered pesticide. Um, there's been lots of work showing that baking soda, especially if mixed with a, a stylet oil, works very well for controlling powdery mildew, and that is fine for gardeners, but farmers are not allowed to make concoctions out of things off their shelves. So that's a just an ongoing um, question for everybody. So if um, phone lines open, 469-0500. And I should probably add to that, Russell, if we don't yeah. have another call yet, yeah. and that is if you don't have powdery mildew yet, it is still time to scout. Remember, powdery mildew has to be spotted early. You can't. Very few of the materials that organic farmers and gardeners use can kill a fungus once it's established itself. And so you want to spot the powdery mildew when it first gets there. So you want to be turning your squash leaves over and looking for little spots of powdery substance on the underside of the leaf. By the time you see the leaf dying, it's too late. Eric. Hi, Eric. It's Andrew. Hey, Andrew. Uh, do you expect uh, this year to be a fairly, um, uh, for, for powdery mildew to be a fairly significant issue? I think it could be. Powdery mildew is an interesting fungus. There's two things. One, it does not overwinter here either. Um, it blows up and overwinters, oh, probably New Jersey would be about as far north as it overwinters, and it starts blowing up here on storms and comes in. The other interesting thing about powdery mildew is it does not need a lot of water. Um, in fact, a lot of water uh, is one way of controlling it. Um, it produces spores and uh, little structures called cleistothecia, and these actually explode if they get too wet. And so one way of controlling it is heavily irrigating the field. Um, but it will spread fairly well with ju just heavy dews and dry weather won't stop it, and that's basically what we're having right now. And could you, could you uh, just describe the disease and, and, and how to recognize it? Yeah, uh, powdery mildew, everyone probably recognizes late in the season. I've got great pictures of all the pumpkin plants laying dead and beautiful pumpkins laying out in the field. And the leaves on the plant is where you first see it. The leaves get a grayish powdery uh, appearance to them on the surface. It almost looks like you could rub it off. Um, and if you look carefully in that grayish material, which is actually the fungus growing, you'll see little black dots, which are the cleistothecia where the spores are being produced. Um, you don't want to wait for that. You want to start looking now, turn the leaves over, and look for a very similar grayish appearance, but in a spot about the size of a dime. And if you see that, that's when you want to start to spray. The yeah. difficulty with spraying is that you've got to get good coverage on the underside of the leaves. Again, we're talking with Dr. Eric Seidman, Mafka's organic crop specialist, and we're open for calls on 469-0500 or emails through mafka at mafka.org. Um, Eric, just to, to bring the powdery mildew to a conclusion, unless we have other calls, those are um, which families of plants are the ones people should be looking in? Uh, actually, there's a bunch of different species of powdery mildew, and there's whole bunches of flowers that I don't know about because I don't know anything about flowers. Uh, but peas get powdery mildew. Tomatoes get powdery mildew, especially those grown in hoop houses. Um, but the most common one that everyone's aware of are the cucurbits, the squashes, uh, are the, and the pumpkins. Those are the ones that get it the worst, and that's where you should be looking right now.
Um, again, we're open for calls, 469-0500. Eric, if somebody is thinking about um, this year I started gardening, I have a lot of weeds, what can I do for to get ready for next year? You know, here we are, first week in August. Um, what, are, what are the suggestions you might have for somebody who's looking to kind of get ready for next year? It's one of my favorite questions because so few people follow my advice. The, the big advice is, one, don't start gardening on t in a particular plot until you get the weeds under control, um, especially if your weeds are perennials like quackgrass, uh, because you'll never be able to get them under control if your garden is filled with plants. And the other bit of advice that almost no one follows is start really small. Um, if you're even on a farm scale, start farming at a quarter of an acre, and then if you realize that a quarter of an acre is easy, go to a half an acre and find what your limit is that you can manage with the labor you have and the time that you have. Um, at this time of year, if you're all, the weeds are already ahead of you, um, again, one of my important bits of advice is to know which weeds you have and learn their biology. Um, some weed seeds can live long times in the soil if they get buried. Others live a short time. Some weed seeds are favorites for insects to feed on if they're laying on the surface of the ground. Some weed seeds suffer to diseases. And so if you know that, then you know, should I just let that go to seed? Should I plow in the fall? Should I put a cover crop on? All of those answers are different depending on which weed you have. And since we're in August, what kind of cover crops could people be planting now to get ready for next year? Um, you want to decide where... Um, excuse me, what is the most important benefit of the cover crop you want? If you're in a situation where you need nitrogen, then you want to be putting in a legume cover crop. At this point in the year, we're pretty late. Your best bet for a legume cover crop is going to be hairy vetch, which grows very well in the fall and then grows very well in the spring again. But that limits you to what you can do because the hairy vetch is going to be growing and doing great for you in April and May. And if you want to plant peas, that's not going to work for you. And so then you're going to either have to use a different spot or a different cover crop. Um, if what you need is just something to hold the soil in place so it doesn't get washed away in the winter rains, um, in garden situations and farmers who want to get on the ground early in the spring, I recommend oats. And for farmers who have the equipment to handle it, I recommend winter rye. Uh, but winter rye grows very well in the spring again, so you don't want to use that if you want to get on early. And also, if you don't have the right equipment, it's tough to handle because it grows so much and it forms these big root balls. Yeah, I can speak from experience that if you don't have the right equipment, rye is a real bear in the spring. Um, I'm just going to check around the table. So, you know, the the entire Mafka staff tries to get out and visit farms. Actually, we have a call, so I'll hold that one and see who's coming through here. Um, and, yep, so... Caller on the line um, with your question, please. Hi, this is Elise from Liberty, and I have two questions for Eric. One is, what can you tell me about leaf blister mites on pear trees? And also, do you have some uh, good ideas about perhaps companion planting to attract Japanese beetles away from my grapes and onto something else? <laughs> uh, my two hard questions. One of them is tree fruit. I, I know very little about tree fruit. And Mafka's recently gotten somebody on staff who does. So I, I send most of the tree fruit questions to C.J. Walk at the Mafka office. And also, actually, Russell is pretty good with tree fruit, so perhaps he can take that. 
Yeah, you want to do that first, Russell? Yeah, so just, just quickly, I th- you know, the, the dormant oils help on those, but I think the reality is if your trees are growing well, those pear blister mites um, damage the leaves, but if the tree's growing well, they really outgrow those in most situations. So um, dormant oil is the other possibility for, for handling those, and uh, CJ would be happy to help you out on that one. And the companion planting for Japanese beetles, everybody's all ears on that one. That's right, and uh, I don't have good answers. I, um, Japanese beetles, a little background, I do not have any really good answer for that. Um, if people have the time, I can talk for about 20 minutes about what not to do for Japanese beetles. But as far as what to do, um, the problem is that the adults are very good flyers, and uh, they're in enormous numbers. And so, and the other problem for you is that grapes is perhaps their favorite crop. Um, and so I don't know what you could do for a companion plant to pull them off the grapes. The other favorite crops they have are uh, soybeans and raspberries, but I'm not, I'm not sure that you want to use those to pull the Japanese beetle away. What I found that does work is a product called Surround. It's a kaolin clay. It's just the same clay that potters use to make pottery. Um, and there's a commercial formulation that's used proper wetting agents and gives you recommendations on concentration and rates. Um, it does not eliminate them. We are, I actually sprayed it on our grapes just yesterday, the day before, and it cuts the Japanese beetle population down to probably 25% of what it was before I sprayed, but it doesn't get rid of them entirely. And then from then on, you can handle the numbers, but the typical way of walking out every morning before you have your coffee with a jar of soapy water and just tapping them, and they play dead and fall into the jar if you hold it underneath them. And that works for the first dozen vines, and the next 500, it's a little slower, I think. So. <laughs> That's right. And some people may have to wait till after their coffee um, because they would get too anxious to get inside. <laughs> um, phone lines are open, 469-0500. Email mafka at mafka.org. Um, and thanks for that last call. The, you know, I guess the, the general question is, what are we seeing that's different from last year as we're out at markets and visiting farms? And Andrew, you've been out working with a lot of our young farmers over the last few months and, and, and traveling with Eric to visit them. Anything that jumps out for you? Uh, well, I think the, the biggest thing that jumps out is, is no late blight. <laughs> Which is hallelujah for that. And, and There are a handful of people who would disagree with you. Oh, right. Excuse me. <laughs> if I, I tell people that yeah. I'm mostly not seeing late flight around, and I, I tell people not to bother, not to worry about it, um, I wouldn't start spraying until I hear it getting close. And then I say the few people in Waldeboro and um, Appleton and actually Stockton Springs, too, mm-hmm. they wish they didn't follow my advice and had been spraying because we've actually have a I think five sightings of late blight in the state now. Well, that that's a good segue in, into the the, the late blight uh, discussion that I I'm I'm sure that it would be a very important one to have at this point. Um, hey, so Eric, can you give us a little bit of background um, about the disease and um, and what what you're seeing out there and what the status of it is this year? Sure. Uh, late blight's a, a very interesting disease because it uh, hardly overwinters here in the north at all. Uh, late blight is what's called an obligate parasite. It actually needs living tissue for itself to stay alive. Even its spores are short-lived. And so uh, 
The only place late blight overwinters in the Northeast is actually in potato tubers, the potato that you eat. Um, and so your tomato plants, your tomato seeds, your potato vines, even all the weeds that are around here that late blight affects, none of those are overwintering sites. And so good management of the potato tuber is the key to controlling late blight, except for last year. What happened last year is that the big box stores brought in plants that were grown down south where it does overwinter. And so these tomato seedlings that were being sold at these big box stores were already infected, planted out to gardens all over the Northeast, and then these started to release spores. And then the perfect storm, we had the perfect kind of weather for late blight to survive, and so these spores were blowing for miles and miles. They're told, said to be able to blow for 100 miles and still be viable if it is not hot and not sunny. On a day like today, where it's sunny, the late blight spores die in just a matter of hours, and so they can't spread very far. But last year, they were able to blow all over the place. And, and we have a call that we'll take in just one second, but Eric, can you just say it, those contained pockets, if, it, if we've had sunny weather since, it, the, it's really likely that the spores are not going to travel very far from there. That's exactly right. So I'm still... If, if you're within 50 miles of those pockets, the towns I mentioned, then I probably would be spraying some sort of protectant fungicide. But if you're further away, uh, I, I'm, I'm personally not spraying. The advice from the Extension Service is to spray anyway, just in case. And those people who live in those pockets wish they were spraying too. Great. Um, we have a caller on the line. Hi. Can you just give your name and ask your question? Hi, it's Sonia. Um, I'm working in my rhubarb patch right now, and I've been curious if it's normal to have the rhubarb die out just com almost completely or some years completely by the end of June or often. And also, I don't know the nutritional needs of uh, rhubarb, and if I grow a cover crop around it, if I would improve something. And I also want to know the best time to separate it. Okay, uh, perhaps some of the other people in the uh, studio can help out on this one. Rhubarb's a pretty heavy feeder, and so I would be careful with a cover crop around it that the cover crop weren't competing with it. And no, it's not normal for it to die out in June. So I would say that there is some sort of disease or it got way too dry. Um, that's yeah. Uh, you, Sonia, you picked, uh, this is Russell, you picked actually my favorite crop. So, um, so. You know, rhubarb, when it dies back, it's usually um, due to a lack of nutrition. So you need to really um, try to get some compost or uh, manure on it. And so the traditional way of dealing with rhubarb is fall applications of manure if you have access to it. Um, but large volume applications of um, compost also work. Um, you know, my crop just kind of in the last week, finally the last of it went down. But um, another thing that you're seeing is that if it's if it's failing or um, cutting out that early, it's usually a sign that you're overcrowded and that you do need to divide your crown. So every three to five years, um, as the crowns start, uh, as the stalks start to get really thin, that's a signal that it's really time to to do a major division of your plants. And you just um, grab a shovel and jump right into the middle of the of the crowns split it, and you can split it again. 
um, and you know, depending on how how wide your crown is, you can um, you can divide it multiple times and just spread your plants out. Um, the other thing with rhubarb is that um, you know they love a they love kind of cool feet under them. So if they're out in the sun, especially um, some kind of mulch is almost better than a cover crop. So you know laying waste hay or grass that you cut from out and around and just piling it deep around there and keeping those roots cool helps the plants to grow. And Danya, this is Cheryl, and thanks for calling. Uh, I found I've been moving a lot lately and taking my rhubarb with me, and I found that the best time to dig it up and take it, it would be either in the spring or in the fall when it's... Uh, and this has been a really dry year, so I've found that my rhubarb is... I've got it on the edge of my garden plot, and it's kind of shaded, but it's still looking a little sad. So sometimes I might go over there with an extra pail of water and just give it a little drink. So, And I feed mine a lot with uh, horse manure and rabbit manure. So. Yeah. so thank you. Rhubarb questions are also are always good, and, uh, and Cheryl is a big advocate for rhubarb juice, so check out the recipes along the way. So we have an open phone line, um, 469-0500. Um, we're taking email um, questions at um, mafka at mafka.org. And looping back around to late blight for the moment, because that was the, the major problem. I, Eric, I think I remember that there's been some late blight showing in potatoes in Aroostook County right across, or right across the border from Aroostook County. So, you know, there there are multiple strains of this of this um, disease, right? Yes, uh, all of the strains have numbers, and it's pretty typical for some late blight to wander into Aroostook County from um, Quebec and New Brunswick every year. Um, but it's very spotty, and it's usually controlled right away. Um, and that is a different strain. Uh, I believe the number is US-8 for the strain of late blight that it gets into the county almost every year. And once in a while, that migrates down state, depending on the weather conditions. Last year was entirely different. The strain we had last year was US-22. Um, and not only is it a different number, it actually is more virulent on tomatoes than potatoes. And that's why Almost everyone lost their tomatoes last year, and, and lots of those people actually still got potatoes. And and earlier you said one of the issues is potato tubers. So just to talk about um, for a minute about volunteers, and again, four six nine zero five hundred. If you have gardening or farming questions, and um, Eric, Doctor Eric Seidman's on the line with us, and email questions mafka at mafka org. So potato tubers, the management, as I said before, is the key to controlling late blight. Uh, the practice of taking cold potatoes and throwing them into the woods is frowned upon by everyone because those potatoes in the middle of the pile may not freeze during the winter. Um, you're better off taking cold potatoes and actually just leaving them on the surface of the ground and letting them freeze, and once they freeze, they no longer will be a problem. The problem with the tubers is that they the ones that don't die will sprout in the spring and that plant, if the tuber was diseased and that plant is diseased and will release spores. Um, the other thing you don't want to do with potato tubers is compost them unless you're absolutely sure all of your compost pile gets hot because parts of your pile may just be warm which would keep them from freezing during the winter and then they'd sprout. And the volunteers, as you mentioned, Russell, are probably the biggest problem in that uh, 
potatoes that you didn't harvest because they were too small or just didn't find, those sprout in the spring, and if they're carrying late blight, those sprouts will release spores quite quickly. Great. We have another caller on the line, so um, your name and your question, please. Sure. Hi, my name is Paul. Uh, thanks for the program. Great thing. Um, my question is about what I think is uh, verticulum wilt on my tomatoes. Um, it's uh, wilting on the lower leaves. It begins about now, and it's something that I've always sort of lived with, and um, generally if I have a good fruit set, it doesn't usually affect my fruit. Um, but uh, And I get rid of my... my um, material at the end of every season, but it seems to come back. Is there anything I should be doing to ward this off or just live with it? Mm. Verticillium wilt lives in the soil, so getting rid of the tomato debris uh, can help because obviously it's carrying it, but it won't solve your problem for you. Um, I would get it positively identified. We have a great service in Maine, and we should support it and commend our university for doing it. Um, there's a place called the Pest Management Office. It's part of the University of Maine Cooperative Extension. It's in Orono, and here's the address if you get a pencil. It's 491 College Ave, Orono, Maine, 04473. And this is actually a free service where they'll diagnose the disease and positively identify what your problem is. The reason you want to do that is because our verticillium wilt will be in your soil for a long time and it's going to be hard to get rid of it. And so your means of managing it is going to be looking for a verticillium wilt-resistant varieties of tomatoes. And Eric, can you talk about the distinction between verticillium wilt coming up the plant and early blight, which a lot of us experience on a regular basis? Yes, early blight and septoria leaf spot are both much more common than verticillium wilt. They start on the bottom leaves. Um, they start with spots. The spots from early blight have concentric rings in them and grow very large. The spots on septoria leaf spot are tiny, but eventually you get so many of them. In both cases, you'll see the whole leaf turn yellow and then brown and then wilt and fall off the plant. And they start from the bottom because these two diseases overwinter as mycelium on the diseased plant. And so unlike late blight, the plant doesn't have to be alive. The dead pieces of tissue that were diseased can actually carry um, the disease forward. And it's until that tissue totally decomposes, it can be a source of new spores. And there, this is tissue is obviously these debris of tomato plants is laying on the surface or slightly under the surface. And in the spring, the rain splashes the spores from those tissues up to the lower leaf, and that's why they start on the lower leaf. And so controlling that debris is your first line of defense. Putting a mulch down to prevent the splashing is your second line of defense. Um, then the other problem is the secondary cycle. Um, after that initial infection from the disease, uh, early blight is all over the place during the summer, and those diseased plants are releasing more spores. So you don't need to have diseased plants on your own property. Spores can be blowing from other people's diseased plants. It's in the air all over Maine in the summer. And so that early blight and septoria leaf spot tends to happen all over the plant. Eric, uh, getting back to verticillium for a sec, um, do you have any recommended controls or management? Uh, no, nope, there are no fungicides or management techniques other than staying away from the tomato family plants and strawberries. 
Um, going into a long rotation, probably three to five years, will help a lot. Um, but your best bet is going to be resistant varieties. There are a whole bunch of them out there. And you can just, when you look at your catalogs, they'll um, have F for Fusarium, V for Verticillium, and a handful of other things after their name of the uh, variety. And that's talking about its resistance. I believe the Johnny Select Seeds catalog actually talks about that in the catalog. Great. And no, I don't. I have a terrible memory. I don't remember which varieties are resistant to which are not. <laughs> I didn't ask. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to avoid a phone call. <laughs> well, that's what catalogs are really good for in main seed companies. And that's are, why I don't bother memory. Yeah. Um, we have another caller. So your name and your question, please. Hi, it's Elise again calling from Liberty. And I don't know if you covered this earlier in the show because I tuned in late, but I'd love to hear what you all at MAFCA and at Cooperative Extension and maybe other organizations in New England are, are talking about in terms of climate change and what new pests and diseases uh, farmers and gardeners in Maine will be facing and how to prepare all of us for that. Thanks. Well, I, I'll start off, but I know that the others in the studio have a lot to say about this subject. I'm beginning to see things that everyone talks about not overwintering in Maine coming in awfully early in the season. Um, and so I'm beginning to wonder if we've had a really long string of warm weather or if climate change is really already taking its effect. Things like the diamondback moss, powdery mildew, um, things like that seem to be coming in way too early to have flown up here from the south. And and are you seeing that, Eric, with other, you know, there's this whole network of extension um, people around the country who are running IPM programs and doing monitoring. So are they reporting, let's say, New Jersey or Cornell in New York, are they reporting um, seeing these diseases um, so early that they're wondering whether they're showing up, uh, just staying as opposed to coming up from early? Off the books, they are. Uh, no one's claiming climate warming is having an effect yet, but people are commenting things are early and off the books. People are wondering whether some of these things are now overwintering where they haven't before. And and I guess at least to your to your larger question of you know what what is it that all of us are going to to be able to do? You know, I think there are a couple of things that are happening that are really interesting. One is that. Um, some folks with NRCS have stepped forward and really want to to have conversations with farmers. Um, NRCS is the Natural Resources Conservation Service of USDA. Um, there's some main NRCS staff who really want to have conversations with farmers about um, mitigation strategies and um, how how farmers can adapt. And I think that conversation is going to become much more active over the over the next couple of years. I think the second thing we're seeing is a, a lot more farmers who are using controlled systems of hoop houses and covering so that they have some ability to um, both push the boundaries of the seasons, which was the first idea for hoop houses, but also to provide a little bit of additional protection from um, insect and disease pressure that they may have by growing crops outside. So I think one thing that we're likely to see in Maine is a tremendous amount more um, uh, interest in protected cropping. Um, when Johnny's started doing work with high tunnels and others in the mid-1980s, that was just kind of groundbreaking work. And now um, high tunnels, greenhouses, 
um, growing a lot of crops inside is is pretty standard on almost all the farmers growing uh, on almost all the farms growing vegetables around the state. So, I think this protected cropping strategies is part of it. And um, yeah, I guess the third thing is that we're seeing people growing crops that were not traditional main crops. You know, Cheryl mentioned earlier peaches, um, and uh, I'll say that the Mount Vernon peach crop on my farm uh, froze out pretty hard uh, this year, but the plant, the trees are looking really vigorous. And you know, 15 and 20 years ago, I had a hard time keeping a peach tree alive. And now I have to really be pruning hard to keep them from uh, totally wiping out. Um, 4690500 if the other calls. And uh, Andrew? Yeah, I just wanted to add to that a little bit. Is um, one of the one of the hallmarks of climate change, as far as I understand it, is not necessarily a well, there is the, certainly the warming trend and the milder um, winters and, and, and warmer summers, but I think one of the things that we as farmers are more nervous about is, is just the unpredictability and the severity uh, that is uh, also associated with climate change. And um, what I'm, I'm seeing farmers adapting to that is, just as Russell said, is sort of hedging against that with um, more protected structures and also um, irrigation systems. Is, yeah, is that's where I was going to go, Andrew. Yeah. I would, here where my new farm is, we were get, in the month of uh, March and April, every storm seemed to be seven inches of rain. Yeah. And now our storms are less than a tenth of an inch, and so I've gone to being flooded to be drying as, as a bone. And so uh, irrigation systems, protection stru structures to avoid the excess water are key. Mafka a long time ago had Lou McNally, the uh, the weather forecaster, do a talk on you know on his ideas of what climate change was going to look like. This is 15 years ago, and his his advice to us from a from a climatologist perspective was um, the unpredictability issue. It's plant early, plant late, plant on high ground, plant on low ground. <laughs> really, just hedging your bets in every way possible, and that's going to be a major part of it. Um, we have another caller. Um, so your name and your question, please. Uh, looks like we lost them. Sorry. Russell, can I go back to verticillium for a second? Yes. Um, uh, one thing about verticillium is most of the modern varieties of tomatoes are resistant. You'll see a V after almost all of the hybrids in the Johnny's catalog, for example. The heirloom tomatoes are not, and so uh, if you have verticillium in your soil, you may want to stay away from heirloom tomatoes. Um, if you don't, then you don't have to worry about it. Just be careful not to bring in the disease. Um, and the other thing is that uh, compost has a lot of antagonistic bacteria in it, and sometimes those can help with soil-borne diseases like verticillium. Great. And we have a caller back on the line. So your name and your question, please. Hi. Uh, my name is Gina. Uh, my question is, what, if anything, is Mosca... Um, doing in terms of um, peak oil preparedness? Uh, that one's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think the, the core of how Mafka has been involved in these issues for a long time, and, and uh, you know, I, I'll just say that I was the state's petroleum economist in 1984 uh, and 85. Uh, you know, I think what... Uh, and I think anybody who has been looking could see this coming for a long time. Um, 
really what Mafka's role has been is to try to rebuild this um, dense local organic food system because if we can feed ourselves from our neighborhoods and our communities, that's the major piece that, that we're able to bring to the table is um, cutting down on transportation, making it possible for people to have more access to fresh food longer parts of the year so there's not as much preservation energy, um, trying to encourage people to cook so that you aren't dealing with processed food, which is a lot, a lot of where the energy is buried in the food system. And then we actually have a lot of farmers who are individually really concerned about this and looking for strategies as well. And I think Andrew wanted to perhaps speak to that. Yeah. Um, well, in, in an educational, our educational approach is, is just sort of trying to introduce and reintroduce and rediscover um, some more sort of lower embodied energy uh, styles of farming, and, and uh, uh, one of those, one of the examples of that is uh, is farming with with draft animals, and uh, we we do several uh, events during the year where, where we we try to introduce people to uh, the pleasures and challenges of uh, of working with animals. And so next Tuesday, actually, if you're interested, we're we're going to have a gathering down in Jefferson that Melissa mentioned at the beginning of the program. Um, and there's going to be several experienced horse, horse folk there, um, and we'll have lots of animals, and you'll have an opportunity to meet them and, and uh, grab the reins and see what, see what happens. So that's one way. I think the, the other core issue for, for Mafka is really about where is the fertility on your farms coming from? You if we're, if we're buying our fertility in the form of bagged fertilizers from far away... Or buying your fertility at all. Or buying your fertility at all, then, then you're contributing to the problem. And if you're doing some of the things that we've been talking about a little bit earlier, and, and so, Eric, I think you do have a role here. It's the, the compost, the cover crops, the you know, recycling fertility. Those are critical things that all of us can be doing, garden scale, farm scale, um, really just looking for every opportunity we have to recycle nutrients within our communities. Because Very that's good point, Russell. I hope Elliot Coleman's listening. Uh, he and I agree that you should really be using everything on your farm that you can. You really shouldn't have to go shopping very often at all. You should conserve and recycle what you have on your farm and only add where you need to. And, and I, you know, there's no... There's no magic solution here. You know, I think what all of us can see from the BP oil spill this year is that um, we're all part of this system. We're all um, we're all contributing to the problem, and uh, you know we're all going to have to start taking steps to to um, start ratcheting downwards here. Um, I think we have another caller on the line. So your name and your question, please. Yes. Hi. I've I've got a couple of. Uh couple of suggestions, maybe. I don't know. Um, first of all, I happen to know that the state of Maine has a great state climatologist right now in the person of Dr. George Jacobson. He's trained in quaternary sciences and ecology. And the way he puts climate change is that it's climate interruption. So the caller or the person on the panel that spoke about the extremes um, has it right on the head right now. It is what we need to do. So we need to coordinate with higher levels of ecological understanding in terms of farming, absolutely. 
and Mosca uh, has a, a, a really great opportunity there to take its, you know, agri um, knowledge and coordinate it with uh, higher levels of ecological understanding in order to move through into the future. Now, the other thing is, is I get straw bales from Arista County, and I bank my house with them, and then I take them out and I make a new compost bin, more or less, a little horseshoe-shaped thing every spring, and I also use it to mulch my garden, and in the fall, I use that to put as compost, along with the compost that's in it, onto my garden, so I get three uses out of those straw bales. And mulching and uh, creating that sort of a, a situation often can, if you've got enough material, uh, avert the labor-intensive crop, green cropping. So it's just a thought for the small scalers. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think anything we can do to multiple uses is really helpful. So 469-0500, we're going to have room for a couple more questions. I think the other thing I'd add to the climate change conversation is that um, MAFCA has participated on a number of the state task forces about um, what should we be doing. And over and over, the, the two things that farmers can do is increase organic matter, and the same for gardeners. And the second is um, to shorten the food pipe, the, the food distribution chain. And those are the things that when they do the calculations are the agricultural activities that really have an impact on cutting down on our fuel use and cutting down on our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so we have another caller on the line. Hello. Hi. Sydney, Dover Foxcroft. Uh, real quick, I didn't have both ears open. Did you say the strawberries can uh, harbor the, uh, the, the uh, late blight uh, tomato? No, verticillium wilt. Strawberries are no another host of verticillium wilt. Okay, but it, uh, well, they're not producing anyway. It's probably a good idea to just rip them all out anyway. Strawberries? Yeah. Uh, no, I wouldn't rip them out, I, especially if you're not sure that you have verticillium wilt yet. I would get a positive identification first. Um, if your strawberries had verticillium wilt, what you would actually see uh, is the, the middle of the plant would die out entirely. Oh, no, they're, they're, they look nice and healthy. They just don't yeah, produce. So you probably okay. don't have verticillium wilt Thank in you. that soil. Excellent. So we're still taking calls, 469-0500. We probably have room for two or three more calls before we'll reach the end of the show. Um, and Eric, I thought we could take the conversation in a slightly different direction. I know you've, you've, as Russell mentioned, have been involved in organic agriculture in Maine for a long time and just wondered if you had any observations um, from your experience over the decades on the organic movement, and I know you were involved in the National Organic Standards Board, which um, developed the the now national standards for organic certification. So you, I think we do have another caller, but maybe we can hold this one for, for afterwards. Okay. Yeah. So we'll take the call first. And your name and your question, please. Yeah, my name's Wally uh, from Harrington, and uh, I just wonder if you could say anything about the rote known situation. It kind of took me by surprise. I hadn't heard a thing about it, but I guess it's not being supplied because they don't want to be certified or some kind of thing like that. But anyway, uh, and any alternatives for the Colorado potato beetle? Okay, yes, that's yep. an easy one. There are two issues with rotenone. Uh, first of all, when the USDA took over the word organic, um, they wrote rules that 
address the inert ingredients in pesticide formulations. And there are actually, ever since that took effect, uh, there have been no rotenone formulations allowed because the inert ingredients are not allowed. Um, and then second, uh, recently, actually, I guess it's probably 10 years ago, the manufacturer of rotenone, the active ingredient in the formulations, decided not to renew registration. And so uh, the, they're not, there's going to be no rotenone on the market at all for pesticide. They're only going to renew registration for use as a fish killer. The, actually, the, the largest use of rotenone is for cleaning out ponds of all fish. It's, uh, it's horribly toxic to fish, and so they dump rotenone in a pond, and all the fish float to the top, and then they pull them out with a net, and they have a clean pond, and they can uh, reestablish a different population if they wanted. Um, and, and justifiably so, rotenone has been tied with a whole bunch of uh, diseases. Even though it's a natural material, it's quite dangerous to use. So rotenone has gone, and we haven't allowed it for a long time. Colorado potato beetles, they're much safer materials to use on a garden scale or on a farm scale. It's the same active ingredient. It's called spinosad, which is actually a metabolite from a natural soil bacterium, uh, nactinomycete. And on a farm scale, it's sold under a formulation called Entrust. And on a garden scale, it's sold under a formulation called Monterey Garden Spray. But even before you go there, your first line of defense is going to be crop rotation, uh, managing the first beetles. Remember, they hibernate over the winter, and there are very few of them that actually come out of hibernation. And if you can catch those few coming out of hibernation that are laying eggs, you're going to have a greatly reduced population uh, that comes in later in the season from far away flying in. So I would go there first, crop rotation, management of the first uh, emerging adults, and then if that fails, turn to something like uh, Monterey Garden Spray. So we have time for one very quick question. Who's on the line? And that'll be the last caller. So your name and your question, please. Hi. My name is Ivor, and I'm from Swans Island. And I just wanted to suggest one thing for the Common Ground Fair. I wonder if there's any way that you could meet the buses that come in in Waterville every uh, day from the Vermont Transit and different uh, bus lines and uh, have mass transit to the fair. That's all I have to say. Thanks, and I'll, and I'll just kind of give the, the quick version, which is we are always looking for, for ideas on how to deal with that, but um, we've had to be really careful about over-promising because if you put people on a mass transit and then they get stuck in a line, um, some people get really frustrated with that. So thank you for that, and we're kind of looking for ideas. And actually next month's show, which will be on Friday, September 3rd, um, we'll be bringing in a couple of folks who've been participating in the fair as our guests, and we'll be talking about um, the Common Ground Fair, which is September 24, 25, and 26. 26. I was looking to make sure I had the right dates. So, um, Eric Seidman, thanks for joining us remotely. And, folks, thanks for your calls today. And um, welcome. Uh, we're pleased to be part of Mafka's Common Ground Radio Hour this month. And look forward to talking with you again next month on Friday, September 3rd. Support for WERU comes.